Listeners, we want to thank our Patreon subscribers. That is Matt, Nick, Justin, Sarah, Teddy, and Paul. Thank you for your money. We are going to do good things with it. There is uh, a new theme song coming for season three. Uh, Not that we are paying anybody to do that for us, but it's going to sound better. And that's exciting. Um, And we are looking at different platforms that we can use so that for those of you who subscribe just for Pillow Talk, the delightful Patreon exclusive, there, if we get like five more subscribers, then we can pay for the service that allows us to put Pillow Talk into your regular podcast feed. So if you want convenient Pillow Talk in your life, which makes it easier for other people to to jump on that bandwagon in the future, get a friend to give us $5 a month for a little while and we will make it happen. Uh, but otherwise, you can just share us on social media if you are into that or uh, like uh, like Disruptive Disciples on Facebook or follow us on Twitter and engage with us there. Um, not that the whole world needs to hear what we're thinking because we're just, again, two assholes with a podcast. But I think that uh, other people might like this and we could have real good conversations if you are inviting people into the conversation. So go out and uh, and do that. thanks everybody here's the show to What the Hell is a Pastor, a podcast about life and set-apart ministry. Each week, we sit down to discuss our experiences and challenges in small-town parish ministry and in PhD work, and ask others to join us as we try to figure out what the hell it is that pastors do and how to do it as best we can. Uh, hang on. Let me see. Speakers. Oh, hang on. Anything? Yes. Okay. I got you now. Yeah. Hey. Uh, apparently, there are. So I'm using Paul Ian's brother's mic, and apparently, it has a, a headset, something attached to it, but I don't know where it is. So. Whatever. I fixed it. But I changed it. Okay. How are you? I'm good. I'm tired. I've uh, recovering from a weekend at my in-laws' house, which was fun. But I'm, you know, still tired. That sounds right. Um, yeah. And um, I'm still trying to learn German. <laughs> so I've got, I've got, my, my brain is on fire. That's what it feels like as I'm trying to retain all of the German things. The um, German class is like a PhD requirement. Uh, well, I mean, passing passing the exam is a PhD requirement. Oh. Uh, the the German class is me trying to pass the exam. <laughs> nice. And so, I, if I could pass the exam without a class, then you know I'd do it. But uh, I don't know if I can. I wonder why PhDs have language requirements like that. It's, yeah. It doesn't seem useful to me. Well, I mean, like, I guess depending on your field, but like for you, uh, I don't get it. So it's all the, the sort of premise behind it is that it, it aids me or it would aid a PhD candidate in uh, research in, in a number of ways. And so if I, um, let's say I find an article uh that's like from a title perspective exactly what i need like wow this article would be great but it's in french um theoretically the idea would be that me being proficient in like french would allow me to like kind of work through the article like i wouldn't necessarily be daunted by secondary literature that's written in another language you know 
that that's sort of the idea um now like if i was gonna like make like bart like or like moltmon like my main my main like person then like not only would i need to pass my german proficiency exam but like i'd be working with german a ton like like right. I would be, I'd be working with almost no English translation of Bart or like Moltmann. Like my advisors would be like, great. Wow. What a cool thing. Here is Moltmann in German. You will translate it. You will, you know, you, whenever you refer to Moltmann, you'll refer to the German text and you'll need to do that work, you know? And so it's, but I'm not doing any of that. So I'm not even worried about it. <laughs> that's nice yeah I was thinking about PhD programs that I might I might try to do and I'm like well what everything I'm interested in is in English with, with English people like so I'd have to think about like what theologians I would pull from and I guess what language they would be initially writing in it, I was just like what would I would I just like do French for kicks and giggles like I don't know <laughs> right well and like depending on certain like fields you go into they might make it only like one language so like uh, i don't know if this is the case at uva i'd have to check but i know that there are some like american religions concentrations or tracks where they only ask for one um language other than english that you need to pass a proficiency examination in Mm. um and once again, it's all for like secondary literature. Like that's the whole point. You know, the whole point is that you're sort of credentialed in this way to um, not necessarily be daunted by some of that stuff. Uh, and it, it's so that you can do deep research or, or, or research that's really on your own, right? Yeah. Like, so it's the difference between Charles Marsh's biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Eric Metatax's biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like, like other than ideological difference, the main difference is, is that Charles Marsh is credentialed to read German. He knows how to do it. And so like, and, and Metatax is not. And so like Metatax is only working with already translated texts. Right. And, and comes to these wild conclusions when, he might not be able to come to those conclusions if he understands German, you know? Right. Yeah. The, the, um, the ability to fudge things is gone when you're like, well, actually like this is, this is what it says though. I, yeah, I was looking at, um, Tom Herman's Webster friend of the pod was tweeting about, um, the, I guess North Alabama annual conference was this past weekend. And uh, he was he was talking about like one point in time that he got he was denied uh, provisional membership or something by boom full membership I think by boom and had made an argument based off of like the original reading of the like the Hebrew of the verse that he was using and mm-hmm. the person who like the person who was the deciding vote on boom for it did not didn't know the Hebrew didn't know that that's where it was coming from but it was actually a biblical source and not him just pulling it out of his ass. I was like, it, like that. That happens a lot. Uh, yeah, They're, yeah, like, I, yeah. <laughs> I appreciate John Darnell, the Mountain Goats, like really advocates hard for reading books in translation because if you're just reading books originally written in English, it's such a small part of the world that you're getting your your literature and your information from, and we're not all going to go learn all these languages to read these books. In their original languages but when you're studying something when you were like given uh, just by virtue of your your title given this sense of um uh, proficiency or uh what's the word i want when you're um not a scholar you're like you're like the person who knows this thing you are the the oh. person who knows the thing <laughs> Uh, so like a okay <laughs> um like a synonym for scholar expert expert of course 
I, I, but like, how do you describe expert without using the word expert? When you are, when you are the expert on a topic and you are, you are put forward as the expert on the topic, like you need to be able to go back and, and know things in their fullness. So like, like learning languages make sense. I, like yeah. I feel that, but I also feel that like this is a way in which academia puts up extra barriers for people who are already like working in a in essentially a second language for mm-hmm. learning for writing academically and all this kind of stuff. Um. Anyway. Yes. Yes. Well. So I agree with that completely. Um. Not to defend academia, I'm not here to do that. Um, for folks who are, you know, so so a, a lot of our Muslim studies students, you know, in in the religion program at UVA, are from like Pakistan or, or Afghanistan or whatever, and um, are writing and speaking in English, um, but obviously English isn't, you know. English is not often their first language or, or, and, and of course the Quran is not written in English and, you know, the, the multitude of uh, uh, Muslim scholars and theologians are, are, are not, are not often writing in English as their first language. And so essentially what happens is the, the proficiency exams, you know, are, are sort of adjusted oh, depending okay. on some of that stuff. So, so it's not as though, it's not as though that, um, somebody who's interested, uh, somebody from Pakistan who's interested in studying uh, Al-Farabi, you know, and medieval Muslim legal codes, um, it, it must also, uh, in addition to knowing how to write and speak in English, in addition to knowing the Arabic and, and, and all of that stuff, must also be past proficiency examinations in German and and French, you know, I have to pass proficiency examinations in German and French, um, mostly because of everything I just said. But like, it's adjusted depending on you know the kind of things that you want to study. Um, actually, most Muslim studies folks at UVA have to pass proficiency examinations in Greek and Latin, uh-huh. um, because um, medieval Muslim scholarship. Uh, is is often more intimately connected to folks like Aristotle and Plotinus and Plato and stuff like that. Yeah, because I believe I knew that. Just the way it works. Yeah, yeah, it's just sort of the way it works. And so it's you know it's it's adjusted depending on you know it, it it's it can be a barrier. I think you're exactly right. But but the way it's it's meant to be is that it's 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 meant to be a thing that helps you in your research you know it's it's not it's not meant to be a barrier and 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 it's also often sort of by nature of students coming in to try to do what they want to do it's often pushed and prodded at you know to try to kind of make it work right okay and so it's you're right though it can it can absolutely be a barrier but uh, when it's done, like I remember um, hearing about a student who is ultimately trying to do a, a more of a scientific study of religion sort of project. And so their second language proficiency examination was in methods and statistics. Ah. And, and like being able to like read, you know, kind of mathematically you know, what's going on in statistical analysis and correlations and stuff like that, which like as a, for, as a sociology major, yeah, that's absolutely another language. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, I totally agree. <laughs> like, yeah. So, well, yeah. And I feel like uh, more and more, once you, once you're out of the like STEM fields, your PhD topics are become these interdisciplinary things, like almost just by by the force of the world we're in today like you're you're just going to end up interacting across disciplines um Mm -hmm. yeah yeah that's interesting 
Well, that's mm-hmm. all fun stuff. It's a, so I was talking to a friend of a friend of mine from seminary. She, so she went to Wesley and then she'd been working in it and she got just a really great it job offer in right. Texas. And so she's near Baylor. And so she moved down to Texas and she was like trying to finish up. She's like five credits left in her MDiv. And mm-hmm. so she's trying to finish that up through Wesley, but she's like, but Baylor's right here. Like, what if I could just transfer things over? And I was like, Mm-mm, they're not going to let you transfer things. That's just not how that's going to work. Because uh, I tried after my first semester, I was like, you know what? Let me look at Duke. It's closer to my family. It's closer to people that I know. Like being in DC <laughs> after the 2016 election is a stressful thing. So let mm-hmm. me just see. And Duke's like, yeah, we'll take like your your non-core classes, but you're going to have to retake all of your Bible stuff. All even of your- at Duke? Even at Duke? Even at Duke, because they have their own way they want to teach you to do things. I just, uh, you know, I can understand Truett at Baylor going, uh, no, that's a dirty Methodist school. You know, yeah. we don't we don't trust that. We're we hear it at Truett are Baptists and we love the Lord, you know, but like at Duke, like I just, that doesn't seem right to me. Well, like, think okay. about Duke. Like think about the different uh, academic reputations between Duke and Wesley. That's fair. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So I was like, I mean, really check with your admissions people. Um, and, and she's like, well, they did tell me that I would have to add on, like, I would have to add on biblical languages. So I would have to take three semesters of Hebrew and three semesters of Greek. And uh, uh, which like, is not a requirement for the, for the MDiv at Wesley, but it's also not like a Methodist requirement to do languages, but like Presbyterians require it. And apparently Baptists, cause she's, she's trying to go a Baptist route. And I, it was just like, there, one of the other pastors who, who I worked with when I was in Western North Carolina went to uh, Gordon Cromwell, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and they require both languages in order to graduate, um, regardless right. of where you're getting ordained at. Like that's the, that's the requirement. And it, so like all that got me thinking about, and you taking German got me thinking about learning languages and, and whether people use them or not. <laughs> you know, Like if you don't use it any after your research, then I feel like that was like a neat trick you did to earn this degree. But I also feel like there's a, there's a particular skill in like learning a language for research rather than conversation Mm -hmm. and like being able to pick up, this is how, this is how a language works. This is its grammar. This is where I go to for all of my, this is, this is how I look up words instead of memorizing all the words to use them in conversation. Like, I think there's a particular skill to that that's different than what you learned in high school. So even that, like, that means that later on in life, if you need to learn French to read some French philosopher or whatever, you now have the skill set to be able to go and pick up what you need. I guess. I guess that's how that works. Yeah, no, I think I think that's right, though. Like, like my German class is German for reading. Like, that's the name of the class. And so it's that's you know we're not even really learning how to pronounce any of these words you know and and she mm-hmm. my professor's like yeah don't even worry about it like this class is designed to help you pass your proficiency exam and be able to let you research you know you, this isn't how this isn't how german people talk to each other <laughs> <laughs> yeah how german people write scholarly articles like and you know that's just not that's just not the same thing as far as like the biblical languages stuff is concerned like i took greek in in wesley essentially for my application for phd stuff oh like like i i i did not end up using it in my master's thesis you know i i did it almost entirely for that um I was also running out of classes to take, which was sort of another, I guess, element to it, I suppose. Like this gave me something to do. <laughs> and thanks to it, I met our mutual friend, Grace, you know. Right. You know, without that, you know, where would I have been? Um, Hopefully, Grace is going to be one of the guests that we're going to have on the podcast soon because she's working as a church administrator. Uh, oh, that's for, great. For a large church, and she's switched to doing a similar job in a different church with a different vibe. And so uh, I want to hear, I want to hear about that job, but I also want to hear about um, 
even between like two very similar sounding on paper churches, how like mm-hmm. the culture and the ethos is different. So hopefully yep. Grace, friend of the pod, will will actually be on the pod soon. That, that's right. Beth Beth was an was a church administrator at Chevy Chase for you know essentially three years of my four years at Wesley. I got to see the whole world through her eyes, and it was it was great. I think yeah. that the church should only be office administrators. That's what I think. <laughs> Am I saying it right, Beth? Anyway, um, I think I think that what was I going to say? I remember now. The so like Presbyterians, Baptists, you know, I think having their fully ordained folks know the biblical languages is personally, I think, connected to their theology of the Bible and how F- and how effed up it is ultimately. Um, sorry, Reformed and Baptist folks. I like many of you, but I think your theology of the Bible is effed up. But like, because I think the whole, the whole remember, the whole idea, as you know, is that like, the Bible is the word of God. And, and if you can read the original language of the Bible, then you can literally read the word of God. Um, hmm. And I think that that is a, a part of that, right? I think it's connected to that and, and why it's, why it's, why people are made to do that. Methodism, I think is funny because, you know, our, uh, most of our official doctrine, at least, at least the stuff that our official doctrine comes from, Wesley definitely knew all of the original biblical languages. We know that, yeah. but Wesley also had a theology of preaching that was a lot more sophisticated than, than, than a, you know, a, a kind of bare bones sort of the written words of the Bible are the word of God. Like, like Wesley had a theology of preaching that opened things up to people of color and to women. And then he understood that what was happening in the preaching moment was something that was happening that, that, um, in a certain sense, sort of goes beyond the bare reading of the scripture, right? And so, for for in 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 our sort of working theology, we I just don't think we have that same emphasis, um, which I think is is a good thing. Now, what we end up having though is that mixed with, you know, conservative notions of the Bible as the literal word of God, which is where we get biblically illiterate people running around claiming that they have read the literal words that have come out of God's face hole. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, so, so maybe we're the dummies. I'm not sure, but um, yeah, I think it's, I don't know. I think it's interesting that, that that's, that seems to be the thing. And, and, you know, I love all the jokes that the weird Christian Twitter jokes about first or second year preaching students in seminary. We were like, now the word for faith is pistis, which means faith. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I'm, and I'm like, yes. <laughs> yeah. Very nice sermon. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, there's, there's a lot of those memes of like people who are just, who are just now learning a biblical language, you get very into. Now, if you look at the Greek, what you really have is, but I, like, I am that all of the time. I'm such a sucker for it. Whenever I, like, (laughs) find a good little nugget, I'm like, but really, guys, like, this is what we lose in translation. Because I have, I have two types of sermons, but the type of sermon that I preach the most is that you think the biblical text says this, but it really says this. Uh, Like, that's, that's my go-to. That's, that's my motif. Um, and then, and then my other one is the Bible really tells you to love everybody across the whole Bible. Those are my two sermons. You think, you know, the Bible, but you don't. And what the Bible actually says is to love people. Um, and I guess that's why people got tired of my preaching. That's not true. (laughs) There were other things involved. Um, yeah, I I saw this week on Twitter, somebody was like, normalize pastors not having to preach every Sunday. Like you can be a good pastor and not be a good preacher. And like, you can give up your pulpit to other people. I was like, I thought about that. I saw that too. I saw that too. And I think like you and I both enjoy preaching um, and like enjoy that being part of our job as a pastor. But I also know other people who have very pastoral spirits like mm-hmm. very great spiritual care, also like good at administration, people who can do literally every other part of the job and then preaching on Sunday, they're just like, nah, 
like the the pastor that I interned under did was phenomenal at pastoral care and was such a good calming welcoming presence and did great things to empower her laity but like could not preach to save her life and like and she tried very hard (laughs) and it was just Mm -hmm. not not her gift and so but but like the perception is uh pastors only work pastors only work on Sundays and really they only work for those 20 minutes while they're preaching on Sundays and that's all we do so it's like I don't know how you shift that understanding and say that like actually no people who are doing real work of the church might never might only speak occasionally from the pulpit on Sunday Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah I've thought about that too I um I don't know I I, on one hand, I think that, of course, I think that's right. I, but I also think that the preaching moment is by and large overblown, you know, and 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 is and and overtakes a lot of other much more important moments in worship, right? Mm-hmm. Like the sacraments, but but like liturgical moments and fellowship moments, and you know, moments where the whole church is sort of doing stuff together. Um. But the other thing I think about is I, I think about how dangerous that is um, for, uh, for the pastor to kind of say, to kind of abdicate the, the, the preaching moment to like someone else, you know, yeah. who's very good at that. Uh, maybe I'm just being, I, I, I'm sure I'm just being um, suspicious. Uh, but uh, uh, you know the the philosopher, the French philosopher Paul Ricoeur. I just read this because I'm reading this this book on uh, Feuerbach, as as you have corrected me. Um, Paul Ricoeur talks about hermeneutics, and and he says that when it comes to religion, folks can either have a hermeneutics of suspicion, uh, which is you know what what we know it to be, uh, or what he calls a, a hermeneutics of recollection. Uh, in, in which we work under the assumption that religion uh, somehow and religious things somehow uh, ha- help us remember the truth, uh, even, if, even if that truth is really buried down or sort of lost or, or whatever. And um, I've been thinking about that. I find that very interesting. But uh, uh, I, I'm very suspicious. I think one of the reasons why I don't why, even though I like to preach and I think I'm good at preaching, uh, I, I still wish the preaching moment was, um, I don't know, uh, 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 less important is because I, I'm always so suspicious of sermons um, myself. And, and, I, and I see a lot of ability in, in very good speakers to um, tell people the wrong thing or, or convince people to do things that are not very good or, or whatever. And so I'm suspicious of them. Maybe I shouldn't be, maybe I'm overblowing that element itself. Maybe, maybe the, the public speaking preaching moment isn't as it only affects church people. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's only church people who are trained in a certain way that are affected by that. I'm not sure. But yeah, that's something that I, I thought about when I read that same tweet, Joe, was I was like, wow, that's, that takes a lot of faith in whoever you, you've decided is going to preach for you, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think about um, like politicians have speech writers and, yeah. and writers for all their books. And, and I think that that's, I think Ian's dream job is to be the sermon writer for some, some church pastor somewhere so that like the pastor doesn't spend 20 hours a week, 30 hours a week on a sermon. They can just have this on set. Like you sit down with the person and you say like, what are, what are the themes we want to cover? What's in bounds? What's not in bounds? Like, what's the goal? I mean, you do what like a speech writer does. And so that way you're not, um, you're not just completely saying here you preach a sermon like i think there's a way a way for a preacher to still be a way for a pastor to still be guiding christian education through the sermon and have somebody else preach i don't know like i think about pastors uh, like head pastors of churches with staffs who let other people preach because they don't love preaching like a uh, metropolitan which is uh 
the church that Ian and I went to, at, which is now National, um, in DC, Metropolitan UMC at the time, National UMC now. Um, the the pastor who was there when I was there was just not a stellar preacher and did not get into <laughs> got into the ministry game for a lot of things, but didn't get into the ministry game for preaching for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and and gave up the pulpit a lot to other people. Um, and, and like, that's just, that's just recognizing your strengths and being like, you know what, my deacon gives killer sermons and I should really be opening up the pulpit to her more often. Um, or like being, being willing to let in like guest preachers. But there are some pastors who are very protective of their pulpits. And I get very suspicious of that, but yeah, I don't know what the, like the, the, um, the like reasonable doubt level of suspicion is for for this because i do think that like sermons are just ripe for abuse then again like like i've been reading books in the salem witch trials and like even these puritans who like had to be in church on sunday slept through sermons and like did not care for all that they were being all that was being preached at them um so uh, so yeah like I think that even even devoted church people are maybe ignoring the sermon or don't really care all that much about the sermon or or are only really listening to the sermon to hear. Sorry, that's 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 the trauma again, listening to the sermon to hear things I disagree with. I don't know. Some people I I was never really moved by sermons. So I tend to devalue sermons. But I also have other friends in ministry who like they're not they're not crafting their sermon at the expense of the rest of their ministry but that like sermons have been very important to them and they really value this moment and like they put time and effort into this and and i think that's i've i've kind of in my brain moved away from sermons are just a thing we do on sunday to for some people sermons are like a really key part of their ministry but like i think the expectation that we need to question is not the inherent value of sermons, but like the inherent value of sermons for everyone. I think that there are just some people that are never going to connect through this. And so we should be putting emphasis on other ministries, but that also there are people who connect through the sermon and like, that's important too. It's a, I, I don't know. I'm trying to like find a balancing act between like I, there are so many people who are doing this job so faithfully. And so I don't want to be like, you focus too much on your sermon. You're terrible. I want to like hold space for if, if your sermon is important to you, that's good. But also the sermon is not everything on Sunday. And as long as we're holding that in our minds, I guess we're fine. But, I, but I have the same suspicions you have. It's, I don't know. Yeah, it's weird. I, I like how, you know, in a, and I do this too. I'm not making fun of you any more than I'm making fun of me too. I like how in our attempt to like, you know, make sure we're not, it's not that we're not trying to, you know, make sure that we're, we're saying what we mean. We end up saying nothing. Like, I don't <laughs> just want to say to people that, <laughs> you know, you spend so much time in your sermon. Perhaps what I mean is everybody who does anything in the church is fine. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that is what I mean. I don't know. I have this, yeah, I know. This, like, it's not what I mean at all. But no, I know. I know that's not. I not what I mean either. It's uh, well, and see that like that's the other problem with sermons is they're they're meant to be generalized for a whole congregation, but really, like everybody has a different spiritual lesson they need to learn in in like that moment in their growth as a Christian. So, like, how do we assume that we can teach anything at all worth saying from the pulpit on Sunday that's going to apply to everybody? And it's not. So you just like preach the sermon you have and it hits who it hits and that's fine. And uh, yeah, I, I'm like, we're just two assholes with the podcast. It doesn't really matter what we say. Yeah, whatever. But, that's, what I, that's what I have to remind anybody uh, usually in like the midst of a, if I'm like talking to friends, you know, like, like from school or, or whatever, I have to be like, hey, just remember that I have no power to do anything that I'm about to say. And so I'm told you there's nothing to be feel threatened by if I say something you don't like. <laughs> you can yeah. just be like, yeah, he's just some asshole. He doesn't know what he's talking about. And I don't. I often don't. Yeah. You know? But like we can also say from our experience, there are people who spend way too much time on their sermons at the expense of, of the rest of their ministry. And those people need to reevaluate things. But if you're not one of those people, don't be stressed, my friend. 
Yeah, just, just do whatever. Preach whatever you want. Be as theatrical as you want. Get up there and cry like Francis Chan. God. The, do the more past- of that. <laughs> I don't want to talk about Francis Chan. I'm just going to skip over that. I love I love talking about Francis Chan. Oh, I, can't. I get I get irritated. Uh, the pastor at Ian's home church is uh, like did theater before he became a pastor like you. But he mm-hmm. his sermons are meant for this like Ian's home church has a big sanctuary you're filling up a big space and so like his his motions are very big his face is very expressive um and and he does uh, like these very intentional like pauses so that like the sound resonates throughout the space like he's preaching for the context that he's in looks real dumb on live stream <laughs> like you're just like why are you doing this you're on the other side of the computer screen this isn't working for anybody like if, the, if there's nobody in the sanctuary why are you preaching as if the congregation is there um but he also his sermons are so um they do a lot of not really saying anything and not following up on any points that he makes they drive me nuts uh, like I, Ian, I, I think it's why Ian won't watch church with me anymore because <laughs> I keep on being like, "Why are you saying that? And why are you doing this with your face?" And like, there are plenty of people who love his sermons. It's just not for me. But I, you said theatrical, and I'm like, I can't, I can't with theatrical preaching. Like, I understand there's a performance aspect to it, but like, that is not for me. I do not like it. Hmm. Yeah, your sermons, your sermons are fine. Oh, thanks. Whatever. (laughs) That's the thing. I'm I'm like, yeah, whatever. I think Ethan's a bad preacher. Okay, buddy. You know, whatever you say. (laughs) I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to collect my paycheck. (laughs) That's fair. That's fair. Um, Speaking of, well, not collecting paychecks, but speaking of sermons that have agendas. So yesterday, Francis Chan. <laughs> I need you to see it. Setting <laughs> Francis Chan aside, um, yesterday we're we're on our. Uh, Ian got a two week sabbatical from his the university that he works for because they treated their staff terribly during COVID. So like, here's two weeks of paid vacation. Please just come back rested. <laughs> So mm-hmm. we uh, are, we drove up to visit Ian's mom and his brother. Um, and then we're going to go do a road trip around New England because that's who we are as people. Um, but, <laughs> we're going uh, to Cape Cod. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to somewhere in Martha's Vineyard. No, it's because I got Ian like a map of the U.S. And like the states are cut out and you put in pictures of you as like a couple in each of the places. Ugh. I know it's what? gross. That's fucking gross. Yeah, I know. Uh, but like, it's a like, because Ian wants to travel. And so it's like, a, here, we're going to travel. This is going to remind us that we want to go do things. Uh, mm-hmm. It was like a, a hope for a world beyond COVID at the time. But so there's a lot of New England that it's easy, is either just blank spaces or it's like pictures of me with my friends <laughs> in it currently. So we're going to go take pictures. That's really the purpose of the whole trip is to to tick off some boxes. Um anyway but so we're up at we're staying with ian's mom and uh we know the youth pastor from we uh, we i through ian know the youth pastor ian's home church and they were doing um this is a sunday where they kids were moving up from their previous grades to their what the grades they'll be in in the fall um and so like the sixth the rising sixth graders now get to come to youth group and the rising ninth graders now get to go to high school youth group um and they were talking about how to have difficult conversations because the youth pastor went to uh, this thing with Princeton Theological Seminary that's like, that was about talking about politics and talking about difficult topics with your like youth group kids and like encouraging kids to like be leaders in their communities because we need younger voices in our communities to be speaking out. So um so the idea was like, we'll start off by seeing like, we'll use the January, we'll use January 6th as our uh, starting, starting point and talk about difficult conversations from there. And I was like, okay, well, this will be fun. And so, so the youth pastor asked us to come and like be, be part of the crew that was going to talk to the youth group. And so for the middle schoolers, this was the middle schoolers in two groups. And he and I had one group of middle schoolers. Um, and 
the like the first thing is like like how do you how did you feel on January 6th or how do you feel now when we talk about January 6th and the kids were like uncomfortable or sad or mad or like all kind of negative negative emotions Mm -hmm. um and we're like well did you talk about this with your parents like how did your parents feel about this when you talked about it like what was your sense about it and they were like almost diverse and like we don't talk about it and I was like Mm -hmm. okay because like this is this is a a church that talks about like preaches political sermons uh, and has a is in a like liberal bastion of of Upper New York like I would think they would be fine but apparently these kids weren't um, and so like I just kept on trying to like I like talk around or like kind of poke at from the side the idea that like we have to talk about difficult things because otherwise things don't get better. Um, because like I like really strongly believe that and I was like well I'm in a position of authority here I'm never going to see these kids again but like I need them to hear this message and so like I like we had a good conversation uh the kid who like reported back from our group just said the things that she wanted to say which is what kids do (laughs) but I like talked to the youth pastor in between middle school group and high school group and was like that is not at all what we talked about we talked about talking about difficult feelings we talked about how things don't change if we don't talk about them and they talked about how like you have to stand up when there's bullying and that's a difficult thing that you can talk about like we we did do things like we weren't just chatting about things and saying you can just leave things the way they are and he's like that's cool that's fine like he was not as worried about it as I was and I was like I guess I kind of pushed an agenda on these kids as I was talking to Ian and Ian's like yeah you did and I was like, no one's trying to make me feel better about this. <laughs> Everyone's- well, it's it's probably because it's not that big of a deal. <laughs> That's what you, you do. Me, Is it you not a big deal to you? Kids. No, not at all. <laughs> what 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 is pushing it? Oh my gosh. That's just what education is, right? Pushing an agenda on kids. Is it? I mean, how else would you describe uh, education? mathematics is a western invention so that's pushing an agenda on kids history is pushing an agenda on kids social studies is pushing an agenda on kids like i can't think of a single thing physical education is pushing an agenda on kids what is michelle obama's get up and move campaign but not an agenda come on it's all the same i guess (laughs) you gotta push an agenda on kids that's what that's how you like teach them how to be people yeah I guess I what what feels weird to me about it is that maybe it's that like I felt like I was pushing an an alternative agenda beyond like what they were receiving anywhere else I see maybe that's it I don't know and or or like pushing an agenda that still feels very fringe for Christians for me But then that's that's the whole point of like having difficult conversations, right? Is that like, if we don't have conversations about what we're teaching our kids, then it's just going to be the same agendas and propaganda of previous generations. Like if we want our kids to do new things, we must teach them new things. That's going to feel like an agenda. I guess that's right. Um, Yeah, I I think that's, hey, since I don't believe in any form of universal human morality that we can kind of know just by having our eyes and ears opened up like like perhaps and maybe this is one of the ways in which i find myself similar to these you know culture warriors (laughs) which makes me uncomfortable but i i live in the tension i guess like if the only way i can teach adrea to love black and brown people is to push my agenda on her that's what i'm going to do yeah because because uh she's just gonna if i'm not gonna do it somebody's gonna give her another agenda that's true you know? yeah something's gonna come in to fill that vacuum mm-hmm. yeah i maybe this is this is the facet of like the colorblind 90s but like the i think I think the underlying idea that I have is that you don't teach people what to think, you teach people how to think. Mm 
that was a big thing with the the Paul discourse a couple weeks ago was that like uh, the people who are Paul apologists in in like liberal communities were like sure Paul's wrong but Paul taught me like how to think about my faith and so like Paul taught me a, a way to think about my faith that allows me to disagree with Paul and therefore like there's benefit to Paul and I was like I think I think I like that but it but at the same time like I don't know if you're going to give kids an agenda that they're going to unlearn over the course of their lives. I guess it's better to, to have the agenda of something that's, that's positive and that's going to like maybe make them better people instead of giving them trauma that they're going to have to go through in therapy later. <laughs> right. Right. And I, I've ignored a lot of the Paul discourse because I, I kind of couldn't, I, I'm, I don't, I'm, I oscillate between being so bored by, by Paul discourse that I'll fall asleep. And uh, from that to like kind of pure rage, because so much of what Christians love about Christianity comes from Paul that I like, I sit there and I'm like, why are you getting upset? Like, of course, Paul's wrong about all kinds of things, but like, there's, there's all kinds of things that Paul is absolutely correct about. Like there is neither slave nor free Jew nor Greek male nor female, you know, (laughs) or, or, you know, stuff like that. Like, one of my one of one of there's a person in my life who I who I think is absolutely brilliant and I love dearly. His name is Jason, and uh, he's one of the deans at the camp that I'm the camp pastor at, and I I just I just find him brilliant and wonderful. And um, uh, we each year we get into the same argument, which is Jason believes that Paul is a psycho, like he believes uh-huh. that Paul. Paul's brain is broken and that essentially the church, the Christian church is formed out of the deranged ramblings of, of, you know, a person who, you know, had a, maybe, maybe a, a, a Jewish person who had a, a, a sort of a, a, a mushroom trip one day and thought he saw Jesus and, and then invented a whole thing, you know, out of that. And I find that all kind of a little absurd. And, and I think he's sort of, he's sort of joking, but, but I also don't think he is. And, and he's, you know, I remember one of our big uh, kind of arguments about it was, you know, the gospels and Paul aren't alike. And I'm like, no, the gospel and Paul are the same thing. Like they are like, like they all come from communities that Paul predates you know we already know that like we know that the earliest writings in the new testament are pauline writings and the, some of the latest writings in the new Testament, one of the latest writings in the new testament is a gospel and 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 you know and yeah it's a gospel of john but trust me you don't want to throw out the gospel of john because i don't know quite a few very important things are in there you mm-hmm. know that that make christians very happy um, yeah, I, to me, I just am like, eh, just ignore the things that Paul is obviously wrong about and like the things that Paul isn't wrong about, but don't like, don't, you know, uh, I get frustrated with that. I'm sorry I went on a little ramble there, but my, what I was going to say is even the idea of teach them how to think is an agenda. You know, that's true. What are you talking about? Like, like yeah. you know, not to you. I just mean to anybody who's talking, like anybody who would say that. Like, he doesn't teach me what to think. He teaches me how to think. Yeah, it's even more scary. Yeah. Like, are you, are you crazy? <laughs> like, you know, are you telling me that it's better? You know, it, it's, it's a more, it, it respects my sort of bodily autonomy more to, to sort of shape the neurological ways that I process information. Is that what you're saying? That, that no. that's more respectful than just giving me brute things, you know, like, no. Well, it's the, it's, it's the idea going back to the languages thing. It's the, like, you now know how to learn a language for this purpose. And mm-hmm. so it's the teaching the uh, epistemology was the word that I wanted to use, but. Hey, there you go. Yeah. I think epistemology is right. Uh, but like, yeah, it, not, but, but you can teach people quote-unquote teach people how to learn things and one method of teaching them how to learn things is like teaching people how to be critical and how to evaluate your sources and how to like see pros and cons and things for that and and one way of teaching people how to how to know things is to say that 
these sources are right and all the other sources are wrong and there you go like mm-hmm. yeah so i think yeah there there is a point to that too i uh, i just we, want there yeah. to be some place that i can rest my head some sure knowledge but there's some not. Sure, but there's not and and we've gone full circle into critical race theory now like <laughs> i i think uh, my my i think that um if there is a good faith conversation i don't think there is but if there is a good faith conversation about the pros and cons of critical theory it, it it's this right it's it's the it's it's somebody saying that often and i think there, this is true critical theory sort of and critical theorists sort of um, uh, present themselves as this kind of, we have figured out how to accurately read the world. Mm. And I think that, um, you know, I think that falls into a particular, the sort of natural knowledge fallacy, right? Like, there is, if, if we merely open our eyes and ears up enough, we will all discover the truly true knowledge. Um, but, but and, and I think it occasionally, definitely not every, not every critical theorist, but occasionally the more popularized critical theorists fall, yeah. fall into that, right? Well, this is clearly correct because we've opened our eyes and ears enough and we've stumbled upon the truly true. And I think that if there's a good faith argument against something like that, which once again, there are no good faith arguments against it right now because <laughs> it's all toxic garbage. But if there is a good faith argument against that, it's that. It's, well, but that's not, you know, critical theory is a tradition of conversation. It's a tradition of discourse and a tradition of epistemology. It's not, it's not any more natural than um, natural law. You know, it, it, it's it, it's equally as constructed, equally as as his, as historical. It's it's rooted in you know the same kinds of things, and so when somebody says critical race theory gets to the bottom of everything, very few people are saying that, but it's the way it's presented at least right now. You know, yeah. Um, a good faith argument against that would be, well, no, it doesn't. You know, of course, it doesn't do that. It's not. It's not a perfectly um, uh, disconnected, a perfectly dispassionate, a perfectly a historical way of knowing. It's rooted in the same kinds of things as any other way of knowing. Um, now, it might be more correct morally, which I'm yeah. willing to say. But I. But I'm only willing to say that from a confessional standpoint. I don't really have. A, I don't really have uh, 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 anything outside of that confessional standpoint to, to make that claim. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I think, uh, and once again, nobody's, nobody is arguing against this in good faith. Not, not at all. Mm-hmm. Instead it's, well, you know, critical theory teaches us to hate America. And we know that the only people we should be hating are black people, not America. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and I'm like, of course. <laughs> yeah but i i also think you're right in saying that like critical race theorists would also say that like of course there are there are critiques and and ways to push back on this like that's that's the whole project of of critical thinking as you say um but that like this is a correction that is long overdue this is a very substantial correction that like we must take seriously because it causes us to to recognize the myriad problems and the myriad injustices that we continue to perpetuate. Yeah, yeah. I. It's just that it's the new boogeyman. Like I, I, yeah. I hate that I keep on coming back to it, this this resignation that like there are just tactics that conservatives use, and it's to create a boogeyman that's going to change your world and make it so that you don't have a place in it anymore. I like, I saw somebody, I, I follow a lot of TV screenwriters uh, and I saw somebody be like, I have now heard from four white men who said they can't get staffed because of diversity hires. But like, I'm here to tell you that the rest of that room is white men. And the one diversity hire is not the reason that you didn't get hired. And, right. and, and that's, that's the continual setup is that like, 
white men feel like they no longer have these guaranteed jobs and this guaranteed power and this, they just don't know how to compete. But the rest of us are just competing for these spots with, uh, <laughs> and like white men are competing for these spots with a handicap still. Like it's, it's not that things have radically shifted such that we live in a meritocracy. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Right. Somebody the other day argued for a meritocracy f- for something that I was like, Oh, 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 you think the United States is a meritocracy. I did not expect this from you. I can't think who it was, but like, that's just, I, I feel like, again, I think that's a facet of like the colorblind nineties was that like, well, now everybody can just be judged in the content of their character, which is of course not what it was. We pretended like we had arrived there. And, and I think like, that's a lie that, um, that is, is further entrenched in like our generation anyway then we want to admit is that like we want to think that like the ut- utopia is is achievable in our lifetimes and i just don't think that we're ever going to land somewhere at, at least not while like capitalism is still a thing but yeah yeah i think that's fair and and like you know listeners this is this is where like what joe has just talked about is where like you get like white mediocrity from you know yeah. like one of the which is which is something that i i I'm sort of constantly trying to, I don't know, evaluate in myself or, or, or try to see whenever I'm really hard on like Star Wars, <laughs> like one of, <laughs> you know, one of the things, one of the things is that I'm a snob who, who wants the thing I like to be good. But the other side of that is, is like, I, I interpret a lot of these sort of major projects that are fronted and by, you know, white people and and white organizations and white money um whenever it's mediocre but it still makes a shit zillion dollars i'm like well, yeah. yeah because that's how it works you know that, that, that's how that works but yeah like, all the all the cruella jokes of like there's a cruella sequel that's being made and it's like but yeah but your your plot was that her mom was killed by dalmatians and that's why she's evil like you didn't you didn't try there <laughs> hashtag girl boss right <laughs> Right, I have a girl are, boss meme that I need to send you that I feel like you'll enjoy. I, I love that stuff. What is it? There's like a, you know, there there are there are 84 multi billionaires in the world, and half of them should be women. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, whoa, whoa. You know, the liberals are thinking of changing of of renaming the the Pentagon to the Harvey Milk Center for War. <laughs> it's like you missed it you missed the boat there <laughs> yeah i just I, I don't know i don't know but yeah the, the mediocrity it, it's it's so i i don't i don't mean to we, we, we should wrap up this episode but like this is really apparent to me having taken this black studies course that i took in uh this past semester where where i'm i'm reading you know we're, we're reading these 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 black scholars or black poets or, or, or what have you, just about all of them are North American, with with the exception of a couple of them. Um, and and you know we're talking work that that far outstrips many of the white people who who would be in their like weight class, right? Like so mm-hmm. to speak, you know, like. Um, like it's like the first time anybody reads James Baldwin and they're right. like, why haven't I read any James Baldwin in high school? And I'm like, there's really only one reason it's because he's black and it's, well, there's two, it's because he's black and it's because he's gay. Like those yeah. are the only two reasons because we're, we're talking like, we're talking about a literary and philosophical mind that, that is among the greats, the absolute greats in North American thinking. Same with Du Bois too, right? Like, we don't really read Du Bois as a philosopher, but but we're ultimately reading a a, a super genius in North American literary in the literary and philosophical world. But because they're black, you know, that's just kind of how it is. Like, like we don't really a white person with half of their ability can get twice as far, mm-hmm. and that's the problem, right? That's that's why it's a, not a meritocracy and that's what you know the the white mediocrity thing ultimately is it's why when john milbank theologian john milbank says 
oh yeah, white people can't get any uh, jobs teaching theology. It's all these black people and women who can get them because it's in vogue to teach to teach themed theologies. Oh my <laughs> and I'm god! Like, I'm like, yeah, John. That's why you are still the professor for religion and politics at you know the University of Lancaster. You know that's that's what's going on. It, it's because white people are being systematically oppressed. Yeah, <laughs> it's just it's just not the case. Yeah, and I, I the, like the thing if you're if you're into teaching themed theology, if that's like the the insult you're going to hurl at people, then you have to understand that we've been teaching white themed theology and male themed theology since forever. So we're just we're just opening up to some new themes, but because it was done by white men, it must be universal. And that's mm -hmm. the, that, like, that is one of the most difficult things to recognize and realize. Um, and, and then to go back to like the difficult conversations with the youth um, is that like, if you, if you do not intentionally open yourself up to new conversations, new ways of thinking that have not been the norm, then the norm stays the way it was and the way it was is not working. So if we're going to do anything that is going to make this world more like the reign of God, we have to change things. It just cannot stay the way it was. And that's, I understand that that's scary for people who benefit from the way that it, it was like that, that, I don't know, that's necessarily scary for, for you and me, even though we really benefit from the way that things are, but mm -hmm. like there, there is a much better world available to us. And, and if people are following their principles, we're not going to be left out of it. It's going to be no. okay. You're exactly right. You're exactly right. I'm going to wrap us up. Do it. Friends, thanks for listening. This has been an episode of What the Hell is a Pastor. We are Ethan and Joe, and we will see you next time.